Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How has your week in Strata been? Yeah, it's been pretty busy. I've um, got quite a few junior ends and because I'm going away at the end of August, I'm really head down trying to get everything done before I go, which I know will never happen. But at least, <laughs> um, I'm trying to keep focused and looking forward to my break. Yeah, you've got a really exciting trip coming up, going overseas for a few weeks. Uh, I would say I'm jealous, but I can't say that because I'm heading overseas a few weeks after you. So I know that feeling. Yeah, so where are you going, Amanda? I am heading over to London for a week and then we're ducking over to Ireland to see some family that will be there the same time. And then we are in the south of France for four weeks. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to make you jealous. Where are you off to, Rena? Uh, We're off to uh, the UK and Ireland. So we start Mm. off in London and then we do Scotland and then we we finish in Ireland. But I I realise we're not actually going to be at the same time as you. I think our paths will be crossing, so... Yeah, we, we could have planned that a little bit better. We could have recorded a Your Strata Property podcast uh, from Dublin. That would have been cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, enough talk about our uh, holidays. Let's jump in to our wins and challenges for the week. Rena, what has been your challenge this week? So the challenge I've got this week, Amanda, um, has been happening over the last few weeks following an agent that I held in April where owners have decided – that we did not agree to a motion, even though it was put and carried at the time. It was carried unanimously, but people were fighting at the meeting, so perhaps they may not recall the events. So in the particular example that I'm referring to, there was a motion that we put on every AGM agenda to obtain a work health and safety report. So after the meeting had finished, obviously we went and obtained quotations from various companies to, to obtain this quote. And then they said, well, no, we don't need this report. You know, you have no right to obtain this report. We never agreed to it. And I sent them the, the resolution from the AGM. And they said, well, we've, we've run fair trading and and they've said we don't need this report and you you have no right to do it. And I said, well, unfortunately, it is a resolution of the um, owners corporation and it was passed. Then they tried to actually send an email around to get owners to, to try and rescind it. And it didn't happen. I think only two owners, I don't know how many owners, that particular proponent and another member of the committee as well decided they didn't want it, but there wasn't a formal meeting. It was all the owners didn't even respond. So I think Amanda, I suppose the question is for owners: once a resolution is passed, if every single resolution could be rescinded, then that would create chaos. And I don't know how you could manage a scheme where a deed has been done. For example, I mean, in this case, they asked us to get quotes, and that's the motion included the provision of quotes. But if there wasn't such a motion, and it was to accept a quote, for example, and we'd already accepted it, and then they decide that they don't want it, or certain people don't want it for whatever reason, I find that these types of issues only occur when there's disharmony or conflict within the building. But the the question here is rescinding of resolutions a general meeting. That to me, I think, is is a key, and whether their owners can or can't do this. And I don't believe there's, I think there's some case law, Amanda, about this where 
once something has mm. been done, it can't be undone per se because people have a change of mind. Um, but I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, there is a provision in the Act, and I'm just putting my hands to it now, uh, Section 21 of the Stratus Games Management Act in New South Wales, and that's about amending or revoking a resolution, specifically a unanimous or a special resolution. And it yeah. says that if you're going to amend or revoke a unanimous or a special resolution, then you must do so by way of a unanimous or a special resolution. So amend or revoke in the same way as you would pass. Now, yeah. that doesn't go specifically to your question, Rena, about how we rescind or, or change decisions, but it does indicate to me that the legislature intended for strata schemes to be able to reverse decisions mm. uh, that have already been made. I think in my mind, it would come down to, um, in a situation such as yours, where the owners corporation has already taken steps to action, if you like, yeah. a decision that's been made. If there was then a motion put to reverse or to revoke that decision or to change it in some way, surely the chair would be able to rule that motion out of order because if the motion were passed, it would result in some potential illegality, a breach of a contract, for example. Exactly. If the owners' corporations already said we're going ahead with the work and signed a contract, well, to then pass a motion saying we're no longer going to go ahead, um, yes. that would put the owners' corporation in breach of the law. So it would be the responsibility of the chair to then rule that motion out of order. And as you say, Rena, we see this happening in buildings where there is disharmony and there are problems and disputes and we really do – it points to the need to have a good, strong chairperson. I know that you often chair meetings uh, for difficult buildings and to have an experience strata manager who can nip these things in the bud that would be off the top of my head that's my suggested solution to that kind of a problem yeah I totally agree with you Amanda and I think yeah you need a strong chairperson or someone that actually understands that a chairperson can rule a motion out of order if it does conflict with perhaps a a contract being signed and you're right once something has happened and it's been done then it's going to be difficult and then usually are repercussions for undoing things but in this, in this particular case it was the fact that it was seen to be a waste of money. We're talking about like maybe $600 or something. Um, it was seen not to be necessary. And for reasons that actually really made um, no sort of legal sense. So it wasn't mm -hmm. as if there was something that, I mean, I can understand if there was going to be circumstances that had changed and therefore this particular resolution, you know, would, would not be in the owner's corporation's interest. And, and if it, they went about doing it the correct way of submitting proper motions, calling for a meeting, getting the right number of people to allow that to occur but I think sometimes people don't understand there's a process and for undertaking like you said Amanda in section 21 whether a resolution can be can be revoked or rescinded mm -hmm. but obviously you've got to look at the ramifications and consequences of such an action. Mm. Absolutely, and that's a really good example that you give, Rena, where the owners' corporation has already taken steps to to action the motion that's been resolved. Uh, it can put buildings in a sticky situation to go backwards and important that chair people are conscious of that. Okay, well, I'm going to jump into my challenge for this week and this relates to proxy forms, something we've talked about a few times on the podcast and uh, seems to be an area that is ripe for confusion, I guess. And this is an issue that has been raised by a member inside the Your Strata Property online community inside our Q&A forum and it's a fantastic question. I have already run this one past you, Rena, and we both agreed yeah. that we would have a chat about this on the podcast and I've spoken to 
a couple of other experts in the field in the meantime and nobody's uh, really had a clear answer for me. So let's put this out there and see what we can come up with. So the question relates to a situation where an owner may own more than one lot and this might not be unusual in a scheme where, for example, the car parking spaces are separate lots. So you might find everyone in the building has both a residential lot and a car space and because of the way the strata plan has been drawn, that means that they each own two lots. When it comes time to appoint a proxy to vote in their place at a general meeting if that's what they want to do, the question question is, can they list both of those lots on the single proxy form? So at the section of the form where it says, uh, I am the owner of lot, for example, I own lot two and lot 20. Do I put lot two and lot 20 on that form and appoint a single proxy holder? If I do that, the person who is holding the proxy is only holding one proxy, of course, they've only got one form, but they have two votes because they are have been appointed by the owner of two lots. If I was attending the meeting in person and I'm the owner of two lots, I'm going to have two votes, of course. If I'm appointing a proxy and I'm listing my two lots on the single form, then they're going to put their hand up and say, I have two votes on behalf of Amanda. She owns two lots. This may not have been an issue in the past, but it has become an issue under our legislation now where we have limits on proxies. The issue to be considered here is whether we are getting around that proxy limit by listing more than one lot on a single proxy form and giving one person who otherwise should only have one vote, arguably, we're actually giving them two votes. Rena, I'm not sure if you've had a, a chance to have a think about this yeah. and find any way forward. So the research I've done hasn't shed too much no. more light. Yes, since Amanda, you know, we first discussed this, I haven't really had any more um, information about it, but my recollection with the previous proxy form was that people used to put all their lots on on the one voting paper and obviously because there was no restriction on, on the number of proxies someone could hold, that wasn't really an issue. But I, I do take your point and I think I agree that we need to be a bit more careful now. I'm not sure if it really matters how many lots are on the actual proxy form as long as a proxy bearer is not exceeding the threshold that they're allowed to hold, Amanda. That's my view. Yeah, well, what I had taken the same view initially, but when you apply it to a specific example, so in the case of a large building where there might be some 300-odd lots and for the sake of argument, uh, I'm not sure if the maths is right, but let's say one person can hold three proxies, if yeah. everyone in the building owns two lots because of car spaces and one person can hold three proxies, they're in effect going to have six votes because each proxy that they hold then has two lots listed on it and gives them two votes. If that's not correct and we can only have one lot listed on one proxy form, then that person is only going to have three votes because they can only have one lot, one proxy form. So that in effect cuts their power in half. And in a large building, that adds up and can be quite significant uh, when it comes to swaying the vote. That was the kind of example that was given by the member who was asking this question. And, and this member had actually run the question past Fair Trading and Fair Trading had responded in writing and advised quite adamantly that you could only list one lot on 
a proxy form. You couldn't list more than one lot. And that member helpfully sent that information on to me. And I found that quite surprising knowing, as you say, Rena, that it is quite common or has been at least for owners, for strata managers, for those who are assisting with the filling out of proxy forms to list more than one lot on a proxy form. And I had actually looked at proxy forms recently and given advice that the proxy was correctly filled out, even though it listed more than one lot. And I cannot find anywhere in the legislation that says that you cannot do that. And if we look at the everyday general definition, the meaning of what a proxy is, it sits with my logical understanding that someone should be able to appoint a single person to stand in their place and vote on their behalf, regardless of the number of lots that they hold. There is a view that that is against the policy of the legislation when it comes to proxy limits and and trying to prevent proxy farming. But I think that's a very different, the proxy farming is a very different issue to simply being able to have one person attend on your behalf and have your vote. Just because your vote, it might be more than one lot because you own more than one lot, so what? You, you'd have that same right if you're attending the meeting in person. Why should it be any different when you're sending a proxy? But of course, that person is still limited to holding the number of proxies that are defined by the legislation, whether that's one in a building of less than 20 lots or whether that's more in a larger building. I think you're right, man. I think it's probably best to probably err on the side of caution and just have the one lot per proxy form, at least then it just means that there can be no perhaps challenge to that proxy form in the future, even though it may not. There's no logical reason, as you've described, that would would really account for such an action. But I think sometimes it's better to be to on the side of caution and just make sure that you know, especially if it's a contentious meeting, that you've really crossed your eyes and dotted your t's. Yeah, I suppose going down that path, there's no risk of challenge because yeah. you've gone above and beyond. Probably if you've sent two people to yeah. each have a vote on on behalf of your car space lot and your residential lot, there's no real challenge to that. On the other hand, if you're finding it difficult to find someone else to attend for you, well, you could potentially lose the vote. You lose your right to vote because you can only send one person. So that's a concern as well. Yeah, so what you're saying is that basically you're going to be disenfranchised if you don't have someone else to go on your behalf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think that sounds right because to me, you know, someone owns a, a lot. What if they had two apartments? I mean, forget about car space lots. If they yeah, had two apartments, yep. they should have every right to send the same person to vote for them on the two apartments. Yep, and I don't see that being a breach of the, the proxy limit rule. No, no, I think it's, yeah, because the intention isn't for people to not proxy farm, but if someone owns two lots... But then, yeah, I suppose I could say, Amanda, that, you know, well, you're, if you go around getting the highest UEs or the highest people that have the most lots, yeah. Well, that's, very- uh, yes, and that's where um, this member is coming from who's in a very large building and says when she does the maths, if that is the law that, you know, multiple lots can be put on the same proxy form, mm. you know, by the, the owner of all, the, all of those lots, of course, then that's going to be a significant increase in the yeah. the votes that a proxy holder could have and I appreciate that. What is concerning is that fair trading has come out in black and white and said to this member, no, absolutely, you, you can only put one lot, list one lot on one proxy mm. form regardless of how many you own and that is just, I do not see no. that that's the law. If the law was intended to have that effect, it should say that and it doesn't and it's not the first time that fair trading has given definitive opinions or a definitive answer on a topic that I don't think is very black and white. No, but my experience has been in the past that um, sometimes you can ring fair trading and ask the same question 
from two different people and you'll get two different answers. Yeah. And I think in this case, when I had the case I was referring to, Amanda, where they didn't want to obtain it, work health and safety report to say that they didn't need it because they weren't they didn't have any employees and they weren't carrying out any any commercial business in the building the thing is that i tried to explain that fair trading is a, is a regulatory body a consumer body it's actually not a legal authority so mm. you know it may give opinions on things and advice but in the, the day ncad i think and, and courts are where the interpretation of, of the law is really the ultimate place where any definitive rulings can really be sort of looked at and um, followed. Is yeah. that your sort of view on that too, Amanda? Yes, or? absolutely. And I have said that a few times on some a few different topics now where fair trading has given an opinion and I say it is not binding, it is not a, a finding as to what the law means. We need a decision of the tribunal from a member or the appeal panel or a decision of a judge sitting in a courtroom yeah. when it comes to uh, those kinds of statements about the interpretation of our law. Exactly. So who knows, we might see this one before the tribunal uh, or yeah. really I'd really love to hear from any others who are having this confusion, whether you're a strata manager, a committee member, a lot owner, maybe this has had an impact on the meetings that you've been having in your buildings or maybe you're a manager who just thinks, oh, look, this is this is black and white. This is exactly how we should fill out proxy forms. Do reach out to us and uh, let us know your view. You can always reach me at amanda at yourstrataproperty.com.au. Yeah, I think, Amanda, you're right. The majority of strata plans in New South Wales that are registered are small plans, so mm. less than 20 lots. So it'd be interesting to see, yeah, how this plays out where um, people may own more than one lot, as you've said, due to car space, or that they may just own two lots in a building. Of I course, mean, that, yeah. that happens, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. Yes, yeah, so if we get any updates on that one, we will definitely fill you in, our listeners. Let's move over to wins, Rena. What is your win to share this week? The win that I want to talk about is one perhaps that some managers may not be aware of, but most strata insurance policies actually will have a policy relating to legal defence expenses. And if you look at the product disclosure statement – or that policy that will sort of particularize what's covered and what's not covered. But basically, in essence, if a third party or a lot owner sues the owner's corporation, then there may be an avenue to claim legal defense costs to defend the claim from your insurer. Now, there's obviously there'll be an excess, there's exclusions, there's special conditions, and obviously things that will apply. But in this case, when we realized a lot owner was claiming against the owner's corporation um, for damage that was not rectified um, in their lot and they suffered loss of rent and, and other financial losses. We then submitted that to the insurer. And at the time, once a lawyer was appointed and, and obviously we knew that we didn't sort of take it too much further, we, we got the legal advice, we sent it to the insurer and therefore we put the insurer on notice. So I think the important thing I think to note in, in these examples, Amanda, is that you can't sort of start and close the whole thing and then go to the insurer and, and submit your claim to the insurer or to the broker. You've yeah. got to make sure that you put the insurer on notice as you would do in any normal insurance claim. So sometimes if it's a small claim, I think most insurers have a threshold where you don't have to actually get consent to proceed with paying invoices that have uh, resulted from an insurance claim. But I think uh, but most of us know that there is a threshold that would apply to different policies and different insurers. And therefore, usually legal defence costs are going to be in that bracket. So yeah. in this case, we were able to um, successfully um, have the insurer 
retain the lawyer that we had actually appointed, which is really important, I think, for the owners' corporation. Sometimes when you get the the lawyers at the insurers appoint, sometimes I think owners feel that their interests are not necessarily being managed or, or covered um, because I suppose the insurer wants to understandably minimise their costs. And I'm sure that you know, those corporations lawyers should do the same, but I think people's perception of a lawyer appointed by the insurer as opposed to them using their own lawyer to defend the claim is always different. Mm. So, yeah, in this case it was um, a good outcome. Obviously we, didn't, we, we got most of the legal costs back, but we didn't get all of them. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously there's, there's always a threshold and there's always exclusions and and if you look at the policy wording, and this is another example of a man I think where you and I have spoken about this in another podcast episode where when you're looking at insurance, you don't just look at the premium and the cheapest cost when you're comparing quotes. It's times like this when when you're comparing um, the policy and what it includes and excludes is, is where the value and where the, where the fine print is really important. Mm. Yes, the um, the key to remember there, Rena, as you point out, is to move quickly and to understand that most buildings, or at least in my experience, most buildings do have this policy in place. Uh, if they're lucky, they rarely need to claim on it. But some forget that they have it and not until perhaps proceedings are concluded and they think, oh, hang on, we could have claimed some of those costs back, particularly if they are significant um, you know, we're not talking about three or four grand. We're often talking about fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand uh, dollars. That will make a big difference to a budget. Insurers want to be, need to be, under the terms of the policy, notified quickly as soon as there is uh, proceedings uh, or the threat of proceedings from a lot owner where there might be a claim on that defence policy. Get in fast, and it's something that managers I see uh, often forget to advise and and paperwork comes to me and it's not until I remind managers to have a look at those policies or committees to have a look at their policy and see if they in fact have that coverage and they say oh great wonderful didn't otherwise think to check that. Yeah right. well, it's an interesting point that you raise because I find a lot of managers aren't even aware of it they mm. don't even know that policy exists so half the time it's too late to actually make a claim because the proceedings have concluded and the claim's been made and I'm not sure if that really goes to the whole training um, because when you're a distributor or an authorised representative of an insurer or a broker, there's a training that they put you through, and I'm not sure perhaps sometimes um, if that training is really that thorough because really a lot of managers, and I've inherited schemes from other companies where they didn't even know that, that they should have done this. So when you say a distributor or authorised representative, does the strata manager sit in that position as someone who's... Yeah, the strata company and every single right. And that deals with insurance within that company has to be trained, Amanda. So it's part of the Financial Services Reform Act provision so that if you're dealing and arranging an insurance in either capacity, you have to have certain training. Uh-huh. Now, some brokers, I mean, there's a, one particular broker um, will actually come into our office and will sit there and train us like as if we're being taught in, in a classroom. Mm. Other people just give you these, you know, online tools to do, which I think – Sometimes, I mean, as we know, and it you know it happens in in universities, people just sit there and do it together, and you know, yeah. no one, you no know, pays attention. Yeah, yeah and it's usually everyone's multiple, on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, multiple choice, and you know, you, everyone sits there just making sure that they, you know, they put the same answer in if someone's already completed it or whatever. Right. So yeah. I, I just think, um, you know, I'm not having a go at, at insurers or or brokers per se, but what I'm saying is that part of it really is a lack of understanding and education perhaps for the strata management side of things of the company itself and also when the um, brokers and insurers are providing the required training mm. for managers and property assistants 
and even those that are involved, I think, you know, at the back end of it, I think people really need to understand. And that's a policy I think people don't really know much about. Mm, and can be a very, very beneficial one or has been in our experience. Well, thank you for sharing that, Rena. That will uh, certainly go some way to reminding managers and committees to have a look at those policies when they are in a position of having to defend a claim from a lot owner. I'm going to jump into my win now, if that's okay. I want to share a paper that has come out of a conference which I attended a few months ago now in Perth and it was a conference put together by Curtin University. I'm pretty sure that I shared uh, some snippets from that in an earlier episode Uh, but we now have the paper that's come out of that conference and in short summary it is a whirlwind tour of the law around the world when it comes to what we call multi-owned properties whether they're known as apartments or condos or strata title properties whatever they might be called in their various jurisdictions. And anybody who is interested in learning about community titles law around the world, it's a nice, uh, it's not long, a a relatively short paper that has a look at uh, England and Wales, Scotland, Hong Kong, and the positions of uh, strata managers in those jurisdictions. Uh, Some interesting information there, which Cathy Sherry, who assisted uh, together with Professor Sarah Blandy, who have both been uh, guests on the podcast, have put that paper together and allowed us to share that through our website. So I'll make sure that there is a link to that paper on the website. It's uh, called Sharing Property, the Results of the Multi-Owned Property Workshop from the Curtin University Conference. That's fabulous, Amanda. That's great. So did they, what, what were the main themes that were covered in that particular paper? So it looks at the major differences between the jurisdictions when it comes to how uh, body corporates are formed, uh, dispute resolution and how that's dealt with in different ways around the world. Uh, I think I mentioned their strata managers and their roles. Uh, The concept of strata manager is not actually a well-known one around the world, which I find interesting. Not everybody has that position of of strata manager as we would know it. How uh, bylaws and rules are made and the different places that power can rest within our community. So looking at developers, looking at uh, the role of purchasers in markets that might be falling, the role of anchor tenants, for example, in large mixed-use schemes. Um, So look, all that might sound a little bit complex, but it is a reasonably short paper and just touches on each of those issues. And I know from uh, the feedback I've had from episodes that I've done with experts in other jurisdictions around the world, that there's a number of listeners out there who are quite interested in the way that our communities operate in different jurisdictions. So if that's you, jump into that one. That's great, Amanda. There'll be a link to that one in the show notes over at yourstrataproperty.com.au. Head over to the podcast page. You'll see either mine or Rena's smiling face for this episode and click in there and you'll see the link to this paper. Another jam-packed episode, Rena. Jeez, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I wonder if our listeners feel the same. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Anything to add? No, all good for me, Amanda. No good. I shall catch you next time. Thank you. See then. Bye, Amanda. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. 
How can Amanda help you today? 